This is episode 191 of the Prepper Website Podcast, where I connect you with resources that will help you live a more self-reliant life. Today's articles are Survival for the Common Man, Your Water Storage Solution, and Finding and Using Fire Starting Materials in the Wilderness. Hey, I'm Todd Sepulveda, the editor of PrepperWebsite.com. This podcast is an audible version with some commentary of articles that have been posted on Prepper Website, a daily curation of preparedness information. These articles are some of the best of the best that have been recently posted on PrepperWebsite.com. All article links and show information can be found on the PrepperWebsitePodcast.com. Hey, welcome to episode 191. Uh, you know, I have been talking about Saudi Arabia um, probably the last two weeks just because there's been a lot of changes going on over there. And uh, it's just one of those things where uh, I'm paying attention to. And I've, I've talked a little bit about that in one of the... Uh, um, well, I, I just have a, a bunch of different resources where I get information. One of the resources that I received today uh, was uh, one from, uh, I guess it's The Times. It's a UK article. Now, the, the problem with this, uh, the thing that sucks about this is that um, it, it's like it gives you the partial article and then you have to subscribe for the rest of it. But uh, this article talks a little bit about Saudi and then also another big important piece uh, that uh, you always you always think about if you are uh, a person who you know considers current events and Bible prophecy and those kinds of things is uh, the peace plan uh, for Israel. And you know that that is you know people who look at uh, you know end time prophecy and stuff like that know that or believe that there's going to be a uh, a peace plan that the Antichrist will will uh, bring about. And um, so there's a bunch of different, uh, you know, ways to look at that. But most people will say that this this uh, plan is for seven years, and then halfway through the uh, the Antichrist will uh, will go ahead and and uh, break that peace deal and uh, you know go against Israel. But whatever. So anyway, um, so in this article here, uh, it, it's entitled Saudi Prince orders Palestinian president to accept Jared Kushner's peace plan. All right, again, here's the title. Saudi Prince orders Palestinian president to accept Jared Kushner's peace plan. Now, the the thing that, uh, you know, kind of normally this wouldn't bring up any kind of, you know, red flags or anything. And and I'm not saying this is end-time prophecy or anything like that. I'm just saying, you know, when I start looking at things and I'm keeping, you know, my eyes open and being aware this is the kind of stuff that uh, I pay attention when, especially when it comes to the Middle East. Um, you know, the Bible is not, you know, an American book. It is not all about America. Um, it is, it is Israel focused and Israel centric, and uh, so the things that happen over there are important. So um, the reason this is a big deal is because the the Saudi prince. You know, actually, so let me read just a little bit. Uh, Saudi Arabia's all-powerful crown prince has opened up a new front in his, in his attempts to change the Middle East by intervening in Palestinian po- uh, politics and demanding backing for President Trump's vision for peace with Israel. So this, you know, we know that this new uh, crown prince has been going, uh, has been doing a lot. I mean, he's been grabbing a lot of the people, the old regime, a lot of people with money. He has them in the Ritz Carlton, but uh, you know they're suffering because they're not, uh, you know, they're on beds without sheets and those kinds of things. Um, so uh, he's, you know, he's confiscating a lot of things. Uh, he's also well, one of the things that he did was he put pressure on uh, Syed Hariri, the Lebanese Prime Minister, and got him to resign. And so uh, he's putting pressure on him. He's putting pressure on. Uh, you know Lebanon, and now he's putting pressure on um, on uh, Mohammed uh, Muhammad. I'm sorry, Muhammad Abbas, the Palestinian president, and he's saying, "Hey, uh, you know, you need to go ahead and start working with uh, you know the Americans and President Trump and looking at this peace plan, or get out of the way. You know, maybe there's some other way that we will we will deal with it." And uh, part of it says. Uh, the meeting. So let me say. Let me uh, go here. Hold on. Uh, uh, details were overshadowed by the purge ordered. So anyway, he was called. Oh, he was called to Riyadh by the prince, and then details were overshadowed by purge ordered by the prince of rival royals, ministers, and businessmen 
on corruption allegations and the apparent Saudi-orchestrated resignation of Syed Hariri, the Lebanese Prime Minister. However, the meeting coincided with preparations led by Jared Kushner, President Trump's son-in-law and Middle East point man, for a new effort to forge some sort of peace deal between the Israelis and Palestinians. So anyway, that's one of those things that kind of, you know, again, sends my spidey senses up and I just want to be paying attention to it. So I'm looking for more information along those lines um, and I'm going to be paying attention to anything that's happening over there along these lines here. Uh, when we're talking about Saudi Arabia, we're talking about uh, Palestine, we're talking about, uh, or the Palestinians, we're talking about, um, not Palestine, the Palestinians. Uh, we're talking about Israel and peace plans and Kushner and Trump and all this kind of stuff. That's crazy. So if you're interested in more of this kind of stuff, uh, I did release the Weekly Watchman. I'm actually, I've, so I've relabeled it. I always called it the Weekly Watchman. And basically what it is, um, it's, uh, you know, I, I take a couple of the different prophecy update videos out there, prophecy teachers and current event teachers, and uh, I post them on, I put them all on one big post. And so, uh, there, there's a lot there, but if you're interested in it, I mean, I listen to videos while I'm on my way to work, you know, so, uh, and while I'm getting ready in the morning. So, you know, I'm the only one here, and so I can go ahead and turn on my phone, and I can listen to the videos and, uh, you know, kind of get that information that way. I'm not really l watching all of them. I'm listening to them and, and getting the information. And so uh, you can go and, uh, you know, I got, I've got one, two, three, four, five, six this week. And uh, I re-labeled it the Weekly Watchman and Current Events. Uh, so that's for November 14th. That's over at edthatmatters.com. I did link to that in, uh, in the show notes. So you can go ahead and uh, get to that easily if, you, if you're interested in that. And go watch those videos um, if, you're, if you are uh, into that. So I think uh, it's not only the prophecy, the update aspect of it, but it's current events. And so there's a lot of good stuff there uh, that uh, is always interesting. All right, so let's go ahead and jump into our first article of the podcast. Um, this is actually my article, and uh, I'm getting started really late tonight. Uh, I know that that doesn't mean anything to you because you're probably listening to this tomorrow morning, right? I always record the, the night before. Um, and uh, But anyway, so I stayed up, I've been up late working on this article, and you know how like you're just, you feel like you're in the zone and you don't want to stop. And, uh, but I had to pull myself away so I can go ahead and start this uh, podcast or I'm going to be up super, super late. But uh, this is um, another one in the series that I'm doing, Survival for the Common Man. Because here's the, here's the deal, right? And I've talked about this before. Um, I love bushcrafting. I love homesteading. I love uh, you know wilderness survival. I love all of that. I mean that all that stuff interests me. If I could, I'd be in the you know out in the country uh, in in staying there all the time. But the reality of it is is that I'm a husband. I'm a father. I have a, I work in in the school district. I I have a job. I can't go do all those. I live in you know suburbia, and so I try to put a lot of those things into 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 practice. You know, one of the things we talked about in the meetup this last weekend is were chickens. I had I've had backyard chickens, although I've lived in you know I'm in the suburbs. I've had backyard chickens before, uh, and and uh, you know gardening and those. I, I try to do all of that stuff, but when it boils when you boil it all down to it, I'm just like a regular guy, right? I'm, I'm I don't do the tactical all tactical gear. I'm not going to be in camouflage. You're not going to see me like that. You're going to see me. I'm just going to be a regular guy on the street when we run into each other, or if you ever come to a meetup or whatever, you know, whatever we ever run into each other. And so I'm just a regular guy doing uh, uh, who believes uh, in the preparedness lifestyle and being self-reliant and um, and so I know that there's a lot of people out there as well who are in the same predicament and a lot of people probably coming to preparedness and I feel that even more so because of the podcast people are finding the podcast and and coming to a uh, coming to the podcast into the website that way and so I feel like I want to make sure people understand that you in order to be prepared, you don't have to be, you know, Rambo. You don't have to be, you know, all tactical and, and all that stuff. Uh, you can be just a regular guy and or a regular girl and prepare and make sure that your family is, you know, has the supplies that they need so that they are safe and they are well taken care of. So if an emergency happens, that uh, you know they're good to go and and they don't have to suffer. 
And so that's why I'm kind of doing this uh, this series here and uh, really breaking it down, making it really uh, uh, attainable goals and, and making it really easy to grasp and ways that people can start adding to their preparedness. And so I uh, started out um, uh, you know, with, with a plan and then uh, the second article was you know, how to move that plan forward. And now the third one is the most important thing that I, I believe in is, is water. And so uh, this is an easy uh, solution for your water storage. So uh, let's go ahead and start reading this one. Water is one of the most important preps. As you plan for survival, you need to be purposeful about having enough water for you and your loved ones. The good news is that you can acquire a water supply for survival with little or no money. With the simple steps below, you can feel confident that you will have a water supply to keep your family safe in an emergency. So why is water so important? The body needs water. According to the Mayo Clinic, water regulates body temperature, moistens body tissue, like in the mouth, eyes, and nose. It lubricates joints, protects body organs, prevents constipation, flushes the kidneys and liver by pushing out waste, helps to make minerals and nutrients available to the body, and carries nutrients and oxygens to cells. Water is tied to health. Without clean drinking water, you and your family will be unhealthy. So how much water should I store? The number that you will always hear floated in preparedness circles is one gallon. But you need to understand that is a minimum amount for drinking and cooking only. You will need clean water for hygiene purposes, washing your body and hair, brushing your teeth, washing clothes, and simply just washing your hands. Start with a minimum amount for every family member for two weeks and then build from there. So one gallon of water times 14 days, that's for two weeks, times your family member equals your starting amount of water storage. So whatever that means, we're going to try to shoot for two weeks here. So one gallon of water times 14 days times the amount of family members will give you the amount of gallons of, of water that you need to have start. You also need to know that water is heavy and it is going to take up space. You will have to be purposeful about where you will keep all of this water. Depending on the storage container, you can't just put your water storage in the garage or other areas that will experience extreme temperatures throughout the year. If you have spare closets and bedrooms, this is the best solution for you. If you have limited space, you will need to be creative. I've prepared a free resource for you to download to help walk you through how many gallons and liters you will need to store for your family. To download the worksheet, click here. I actually have two links, alright? So, um, I, I normally put my stuff in a, in a Google Drive. Google just makes it kind of easy there. But I had a couple of people say, Todd, we don't like Google. We don't do Google. You know, Once I clicked on the link and I saw that it was Google, I backed out of it. And so I have put the link on uh, or I have put the, uh, the, the freebie in, uh, in Dropbox and a link to uh, that, that, uh, that link in Dropbox. So you have that link there as well. Okay, so storing water on the cheap. As you begin your water storage, the easiest and simplest solution is to fill two liter plastic bottles that once contained soda or pop. If you guys up north, uh, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> two liter bottles hold car carbonated drinks under pressure for a long time. Many feel this makes two liter bottles a perfect free container to hold water. Acquiring two liter bottles is fairly easy. If you let people know you are doing a quote unquote project, you can also load up during parties if you keep an eye out for them. The procedure for washing and filling water bottles varies depending on which articles you read. I will provide you with a few ideas. You'll have to decide on how far you want to go with your water storage. To use these bottles, you need to make sure you wash them thoroughly with hot water and bleach. You don't want to leave any of the soda or sugar behind. This can cause bacteria to grow in your water bottles. Common advice among preppers is to mix one teaspoon of unscented bleach per one quart of water and use the water to clean out the soda bottles. Some people will tell you to let them dry and then do it again to be safe. You need to decide on that for yourself. Most don't do the second washing. After you feel comfortable with how clean your 2 liter bottles are, you can then fill them up using regular tap water. Here again you will find various schools of thought. Some will tell you to fill the bottles up with tap water and then seal them up for storage and others will tell you to put two drops of unscented bleach into each 2 liter bottle for safety purposes. You have to make and live with the final decision. 
Lastly, the water in the two liter bottles will need to be rotated. Again, ideas vary. Some will tell you this needs to be done every six months. Others will say this needs to be done every year. And then some will say that if you did a good job of cleaning them in the first place, you don't ever have to worry about rotating out the water. You have to feel comfortable with your decision, so do what you feel is right here. Note, if you do rotate your water out, use the water to water your plants or yard. Just don't waste it. Other water storage solutions. One term that is very common to know in survival is redundancy. You'll often hear the phrase, two is one, one is none. This phrase refers to the fact that some, sometimes things don't go as planned and you need a backup. When you are talking about something as precious as water, you need redundancy. I suggest that every household have at least one, if not two, water bobs. A water bob is a one-time use, 100-gallon plastic bladder that sits in your bathtub and is filled with water from your tap. In the onset of an emergency, you would deploy the water bob and fill it up. The water bob comes with a pump that allows you to pump water out of the bag and into your container. A water bob costs about $70 and is well worth the peace of mind that you can quickly deploy this device and store up to 100 gallons of water for your family. You might be asking, can I just fill up my tub with water and not purchase a water bob? Yes and no. Yes, you can fill up your tub with water, but you can't use that water to drink or for hygiene purposes. The reason is that you can never get your bathtub clean enough. No amount of scrubbing and cleaners will ever get all the nasty crud out of your tub. You can use the water in your bathtub to flush your toilets though. So if you have multiple bathtubs, you might want to consider using one to fill for flushing purposes. And then I included uh, a water bob video. It's just the instructions on how to use the water bob, uh, just in case you wanted to know what it would look like uh, after you deployed it. So I'm, I have one in my closet. And uh, if I ever needed it, I you know, just bring it down and, and deploy it and start filling it up. Uh, it's really easy to use. Another option that you might want to consider is a life straw water filter. This is the easiest type of water filter on the market. You basically put one end in dirty water and the other in your mouth and then suck the water up like a straw. If you have little ones, this might be an important solution for you. There are no moving parts or ways you can mess this up. It is easy for a young child to understand how to use. My first experience with the life straw was at an expo. The guy behind the counter was using the water in a nasty gallon jug of dirty water. He would suck up a, water, a, a whole mouthful and then spit it out in a clear cup. The water was clean. It was pretty amazing to watch. After that moment, I was sold. I always suggest life straws to anyone wanting a water filtration system for their family. And are there others? Yes, but this is by far the easiest. Again, it is easy enough for a young child to use. And then you, uh, there's, I did provide a video also for the life straw. Uh, conclusion is water is life. You need water. There is the reason, this is the reason that I have chosen to write about this topic as the first topic after planning for this series. Take a moment to download the free PDF resource to help you calculate how many 2-liter bottles you will need to store up enough water for your family. Then put this information into practice. So action steps. Download the free PDF resource on water. And again, there's the, the, the dual links there to either Google or Dropbox. Acquire 2-liter two two bottles and unscented bleach and find a place to store your water storage. Alright, so uh, and then I also have links to um, I have a link to Amazon where you can go to Life Straw and, and get a Life Straw and also uh, a Water Bob and I have links to the other two articles if you didn't get to read those and uh, I'm trying to you know provide some kind of worksheet with I know that at some point I'm probably not going to do that but uh, here at the beginning I'm, I'm providing some kind of worksheet or uh, you know thing that you can download a uh, resource that you can download to include in your preps uh, and again so the, when I'm doing this I'm keeping in mind that uh, you might be new to completely new to preparedness and new to survival and so I'm just kind of walking you through the basics here so we talk about one gallon I mean as the minimum one gallon per uh, you know per person per day but when we're talking about two liters, uh, we went ahead. And I went ahead and did that on the worksheet to where you could easily convert that. Uh, you just kind of plug in your uh, and and when I say plug in, I mean like just write in your the numbers 
how many gallons you need or or uh, how many days or whatever you're doing and then uh, it's pretty simple math or you just get a calculator out and just go ahead and do it and it'll tell you how many two liters you need to have those amount of gallons for your family and um, so you might see that uh, you have some two liter bottles uh, as part of your solution you might start adding some other things you might look at 55 gallon uh, containers you know a lot of the times you can buy those on Craigslist uh, very very cheaply you just got to make sure that uh, they were used for food storage and not for um, not for anything else uh, not for you know not with any other kind of chemicals there's things called water bricks uh, there's all kinds of things you can do uh, along those lines um, the life straw I think it's easy there's you know a lot of people purchase the the Sawyer uh, mini water fil filters those are very good as well um, but uh, I'm talking about ease of use, uh, something that you know a five-year-old can can understand, or maybe even younger can understand how to use, and that's why I promote the life straws. Um, because when it comes to survival, I mean, you might be in this predicament right now where uh, you you're preparing and you believe in preparing and you believe that something's coming and uh, it just makes sense. Uh, maybe you're seeing all the all the craziness and like Harvey and earthquakes and fires and and all that kind of stuff and um, you say hey, it's a good idea to prep, but maybe your family's not on board, and so uh, you might have some young kids who who aren't into you know learning how to do a, a Sawyer mini water filter, and so you have a live straw for them. So anyway, that's over at edthatmatters.com. Uh, like always, I link to the articles, um, and so you can easily get to them if uh, if you want to come to the Prepper website podcast.com. You can go that way, or uh, in the show notes if you get the show notes from uh, your podcast catcher. It'll be there so you can go right over there and go get those. And uh, be on the lookout for other articles. Like I said, I have one in the works uh, to come out probably really early next week. I was trying to get it done earlier, but I just I just couldn't. But uh, early uh, this next week and um, uh, be, be on the lookout for that one. Uh, the next the next one, uh, next article in the series, uh, Survival for the Common Man. All right, so let's go ahead and move on to our next one. This is a little bit longer article here. Uh, it comes to us from Modern Survival Online, but I think this is important. And uh, you know, just w and, and when, you know, one of the things I try to do is I try to grab a, a variety of different articles. I try not to stay. I mean, I could very easily talk about bug out and bug in and, and bug out bags and, and kits. I can talk a lot about that because there's a lot of articles on that. But I'm trying to uh, cover a wide range of varieties, and I think that uh, you know we're talking about water solution here, uh, and then we go right into this next one, and this is about fire starting. And uh, there's a lot of ways that you can start fires. There's a lot of materials that you can buy. There are a lot of things that you can make, homemade fire starters and things like that. And we have talked about that in the podcast uh, before. But um, this is about finding fire starting materials in the wild and, and not something that you bring from home uh, for whatever reason it might be. Or let's just say you're hiking and you find some of these things or you see some of these things and you want to take some of these things uh, home with you so that you can try them out when you're building a fire. And I do recommend, I, I was going to talk a little bit about that uh, before or uh, after the, the article, but let me go ahead and just jump into it now. I do recommend that you go ahead and try building some fires now. You know, uh, it's getting colder um, here in here in Houston. It's still a little too warm to build a uh, you know a fire outside and go sit out by the fire. But a lot of you up north are already. I mean, you are uh, you know some of y'all have already experienced uh, you know snow, uh, little, you know some snow falling and stuff like that. So uh, definitely, you have some good conditions to go ahead and build a fire and just go, you know, or sit around it and and enjoy that, you know, that that atmosphere. But take a little bit of time to try to learn how to build a fire without the fire starting materials. Not not that you, you know, you're. You, I mean, use those if you have to, right? But. I'm just saying, when you have a chance to practice, practice. Take a little bit of time to do that and see if you can do it. See where the hang-ups are. See where you're having issues in doing that. I think it's a, it's a great, I mean, you just really feel good about it. I remember when I was in Boy Scouts, um, my Scoutmaster was, I mean, he was he was a stickler for that. And uh, I remember one, one uh, 
camping trip, he got on to all of us because we just we were using materials that we shouldn't have been using to start our fire. And uh, he was all over us. And he said, man, next time y'all better be able to start a fire with two matches and that's it. And you know what? I went home and I practiced and uh, I even brought my own tinder and kindling and I was ready to go and started that fire up. So, And you feel good when you're able to do something like that. There's something like very primitive, primal about that where you're able to just, you know, you feel good that you're able to do that. And you know what? It's just that's not a lot of people get to do that anymore. Um, you know, if so, if you have, um, you know, you have a, a fire pit in the backyard, and, and you know, uh, a lot of fire pits now are just like straight up gas. People just run the gas to it, right, and uh, and and go from there. But if you have a fire pit uh, back in the backyard, go ahead and and, and practice starting, um, you know, some primitive using primitive ways. Um, I'm not, and I am not saying, you know, that needs to be the only way that you need to start a fire. You need to have a lighter. In fact, when we talk about, we just talk about redundancy, you need to have a lighter and you need to have a backup lighter because in a real emergency situation, you don't want to be messing with the ferro rod. That's like, you know, or flint and steel. You don't want to be rubbing two sticks together. None of that stuff. That is like, you know, real primitive, like, you know, you, you know, Gilligan's Island, <laughs> Gilligan's Island uh, type stuff, right? Uh, if you absolutely have to, and I'm saying you, you should know how to do that. You can, you should practice how to do that if you can. But I'm just talking about, you know, a lot of people don't even know how to start a fire without any kind of materials, right? Uh, and and doing that. I actually wrote an article on that a while back. Um, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll try to find that one and link to that one. I uh, did a fictional account of uh, of that, and then. Uh, so if, if I find it, I will add it into the show notes now that I'm thinking about it. All right, I'm talking way, way too much. And this is a, this is a, a decent article uh, with a lot of good information. So I'm going to go ahead and start and, and shut up and start reading this one. All right, again, like I said, ModernSurvivalOnline.com. The title of the article is Finding and Using Fire Starting Materials in the Wilderness. All right, let's go. In the wilderness, fire is your best friend. It cooks food and sterilizes water. It dries wet socks and lifts sunken spirits. Fire is comfort in the dark when every night sound beyond camp is something lurking. But when you're out of cotton balls and esbit tablet, fires won't cut you a break. And if, you're in, if you intend to survive, no matter the odds, you need to know how to find and use the fire starting tools available all around you. We're talking wild forged tinder and kindling, the bushcrafter's bread and butter. Tinder versus kindling. Before you trundle off into the brush to practice the timeless task of producing fire, it's important to know what you're looking for. When it comes to producing fire with nothing but natural materials and a fierce rod or a ferro rod, you'll need two main things, tinder and kindling. Without one, the other is just about useless and you're in the dark, so let's define. Tinder is dry and fluffy. The stuff of any good fire. It's where the first flicker of flame or white smoldering wisp comes into play. Tinder can be simple, dead, dried grass and leaves or processed fungi. Finding tinder is the first step to making fire. Kindling is step two. It's what catches the flame or coal produced from tinder. Pine needles, twigs, or torn up bark can all be kindling. It's the material that's too big for a spark to light and too small to efficiently sustain a fire. Kindling brings your fire from a little flicker of heat to big licking flames so essential to survival. Wet or dry, there are common materials in your neck of the woods that, with a little know-how and a few simple tools, can produce all the heat you need to stoke a fire. All materials covered will light with nothing more than sparks. But if you have a lighter or matches, all the better. So, tender. Dried plants. Let's start off simple with one you probably already know. If the weather's been dry lately, you're sure to find more than enough dead and dried plant material or matter to start a fire. Dried grass, ferns, and leaves can make great easy to find tender with just a little processing. Collect about twice what you think you'll need and tear your tender into thin strips and bits. Once broken down, collect a hefty handful and rub vigorously between your palms over your intended fireplace. The intent here is to break the, dry, the dead plant matter down as fine as possible. You're looking to make a palm-sized pile of torn strips, bits, and even dust. 
Now, bunch this pile together and form a little divot in the center. Place the end of your ferro rod in the divot and rain down a generous shower of sparks. With a little persistence, the sparks should catch and flames will spring up. Additionally, dried plant materials can be used in combination with tinder that instead of bursting into flames, smolders. In a situation where you have a smoldering type of tinder, such as tinder fungus, chaga or milkweed ovum, included later in this article, you will make what is called a bird's nest. A bird's nest is a simple and easy way to produce fire from the smallest smoldering ember, even the gray remains of a long extinguished campfire. To make a bird's nest, gather two generous handfuls of dried plant matter as if you were going to use it as the tinder itself. Separate the pile and loosely sandwich your ember within the pile. Now with patient, constant breath, blow into the bird's nest. Keep blowing until you see smoke. At this point, you need to be ready to put the bird's nest gently down and introduce kindling. Keep blowing until the smoke thickens and flame springs up. Sap, pitch, and resin. There are technical differences between sap, pitch, and resin, but there's no need to get into it here. There are common terms we all understand, and they burn no matter what you call them. Unlike many of the sources on this list, there is no surefire way to find sap. This tacky tinder is produced when a tree is damaged or cut. You're most likely to spot sap while searching for some other tinder, so keep your eyes open. And so I wanted to, I wanted to say here with the sap pitcher resin, and like we, we said, uh, like I said earlier, if you uh, maybe you're just hiking and you're not necessarily uh, you know trying to, to build a fire, but maybe you're hiking and you see some of these things, uh, you know those Altoid tins are a great place to kind of throw. Uh, you know, sap or pitch or resin that you find, kind of throw it in there and just kind of keep it. Uh, because you're going to see here in a minute when he's talking about this that it just makes really great uh, fire starting material. And so uh, those those Altoid tins are, are great if you use those or maybe you have someone who uh, who uses those all, you know, who eats the mints and uh, maybe they just throw away the, the tins. Uh, you know, make sure you ask people for those tins uh, because they, they can be very useful when you're car compartmentalizing parts of your kit, right? So uh, you can have a fire kit, you know, it's just a small fire kit. Um, I actually have, uh, you know, put EDC, put EDC stuff in my Altoids kits. But anyway, okay, so let me keep going here. Uh, freshly fallen or damaged conifer trees are your best bet. And we're still talking about this, uh, the sap pitch and the resin. Uh, look for cloudy yellowish sap dried to the outside of the tree near a broken branch or damaged bark. It should, should, should be hard or even tacky to the touch, like dried plant material and all fire-related materials. Gather more than you need or you think you'll need. Any sap seeping from the tree is already lost, so don't worry about harming the tree. For the purpose of starting a single fire, a quarter-sized dollop should do. Touch the sap with some sparks or a flame and watch the fire spread. Sap burns hot and slow, so it's a great tinder to use if you're working with water material. Damp pine needles or pine cones will dry out enough to light when used in combination with sap. And unlike many tinder sources, sap is easy to store. Just roll it into a ball and wrap a leaf around it. But remember, once you light a bit of sap, there's no going back. It will turn to liquid as it burns, so only light what you need and save the rest. Common reeds. The feathery seed heads of common reed plants are dry, fluffy, and eager for a spark. You'll find them growing tall in and on the border of wetlands, swamps, and other soggy terrains. Common reeds like to grow in large beds of shallow water. Like many of the other types of wild available tinder on the list, you don't need to worry too much about finding the exact type of plant. Just look for tall stalks around six feet tall with flat pointed leaves that along with the feathery seed heads are so light that they follow the direction of the wind. When it comes to fire starting, this one's easy. Just lay a seed head down where you're making a fire and throw some sparks into it. The seed head will catch flame and burn at a medium rate, giving you plenty of time to add small kindling. Unless you have quite a bit of it on hand, the common reed is not ideal when used with wet kindling. Cattail. This is one plant that just about anyone can identify. Cattails grow aggressively in marshes, swamps, and other wetland environments. 
their unique solid brown sausage-like head on top of a pinky finger thick stock is easy to spot for even the most green of bushcrafters. The stuff you're looking for is the fluffy seed material inside the plant head. You've no doubt seen this drifting through the air on a windy day near a swamp, but once you're spotted your cattail, don't rush over and start picking the plant apart straight away. The dry white and fluffy material you're after is tightly compressed within the firm seed head. When the seed head is broken, the tinder inside doesn't come peacefully. It bursts out into a fluffy bloom that, if you aren't careful, will fly away with your chances of starting a fire. Instead of pulling out the tinder there at the swamp's edge, collect two or three seed heads and bring them back to camp. Cattail is essentially portable and an extremely competitive grower, so don't worry about damaging the ecosystem by taking too much back to camp. Cattails are are one of the many forms of flash tinder. Flash tinder, unlike heavier, more hardy tinders, burn in the blink of an eye. So you will need something to catch that fast flame. Torn up birch bark, dead leaves, pine needles, or some other dry and easy lit material is the best. When you're ready to start a fu your fire, break open the cattail and spread a wide thin layer over your fireplace. Sprinkle the supplementary tinder all over the cattail and shower down some sparks. You're going to need to be quick here. The cattail will combust, flare into flame, and go out. One of the more pieces, one of the more pieces of the scattered heavier tinder will catch and hold a flame. If you're quick, you can snatch up the remaining unlit pieces of tinder and feed this newborn flame. Additionally, you can prepare a small pile of dry plant matter and add it to the small flame. Cattail can be a bit stressful to use as it is quick and unforgiving. However, it is both abundant and virtually impervious to whatever the weather has in store. The tight-packed, fluffy seeds stay bone-dry so long as you pull them from an unbroken part of the, seat of the head. With a little practice, cattails will do the job every time. Milkweed. This extremely common perennial can be a fantastic late-season tender source. Milkweed grows in disturbed areas like roadsides, railroad tracks, and agricultural fields so locating its natural habitat is no trouble. Additionally, identifying this plant is also quite easy. Milkweed can grow to over 8 feet tall and its thick green stalk is lined with opposite rows of broad flat leaves. If you're not sure that you've found a milkweed plant, just snap a piece of the stem and look for the white milky sap that gives the plant its name. Unlike many of the tenders on the list, the usefulness of milkweed depends largely on the season. The teardrop-shaped seed pod, while still green in August and throughout the summer, is no good for tinder. However, once fall-winter rolls around and the milkweed seed pods have dried up, now it's ready to use. Milkweed can be, be used in two different ways. The feathery white filament within the seed pod can be used as a flash tinder just like cattails, while the dried seed pod ovum, the walls or casing which make up the pod, can be showered with sparks and set to smolder. So don't worry if you manage to locate a milkweed plant only to find all the seeds scattered to the wind. Just build yourself a bird's nest and use the smoldering milkweed ovum to blow a fire to life. As a note of caution, be careful when searching for and harvesting milkweed. Their colorful and complex flowers are a main source of food for wasps and bees. And keep your eye out for the beautiful monarch butterfly that flocks to feed on milkweed every year. Fatwood this tender is both one of the best to use and the most challenging to prepare. It is very technical tender, but once you know how to find it, you'll be on the lookout on every height. Fatwood is the product of a dead conifer tree. In the fruitless effort to sustain itself as long as possible, the evergreen will pull all of its life-giving sap deep within itself. This process creates inner areas of supersaturated material full of wonderful smelling sap. To find and retrieve fatwood, first locate a fallen evergreen tree. The older the better, even wet punky wood so rotten that it crumbles in your hand. The longer the tree has been down and decomposing, the more concentrated the fatwood. Now that you've found your down conifer tree, look for a good thick limb. The thicker the better. The highest concentration of fatwood is found in the very center at the base of a limb where it connects to the trunk. If you can break the limb off with your hands, great, 
but don't risk injuring yourself and making matters worse in a survival situation if you don't have to. Use a saw, axe, or baton with your favorite bushcraft knife to cut the limb away so close to the trunk as possible. Now, cut away the outside bark and wood of the limb or crumble it in your hands if it's rotten enough. You're looking to expose the center of the limb. You'll know you found fat wood when you see deep crimson wood and smell the stronger odor of pine pitch. Continue working with the limb, cutting away all of the bark and rotten punky wood. Once you have your fat wood exposed, you're ready to process it. Use an axe or baton with your bushcrafting knife to split the wood. Quartered it Quartered is best because you are looking to produce a clean, sharp edge along the length of the fat wood. Now that you have a sharp corner on the wood, scrape the point with the back of your knife to produce thin curls of fat wood. Once you have a golf ball or a smaller sized pile of fat wood, send a few sparks down on top and watch the fire spring to life. Fat wood will burn hot and slow no matter the weather. So if it's been raining for a week and you can find a down conifer tree, feel confident that you can start a fire with a bit of hard work. And don't worry if the tree looks too long gone. The more wet, rotten, and falling apart, the better. Inside is a vein of one of your best fire-starting friends. Um, I uh, know that Brian uh, linked to a, uh, a fat wood article on the Facebook group. Uh, so if, uh, if you're in the Facebook group, you can go check that one out if you, if you hadn't already. Uh, or if you'd like to be part of the Facebook group, uh, you can just uh, come over to theprepperwebsitepodcast.com and click on the free Facebook group. It'll take you over to Facebook and you can just click join. Or if you want to go straight there, you can go to uh, the website amoreselfrelientlife.com. And that uh, just put that in your browser and it will take you straight over there. And you just click join and we'll get you over there. And uh, so, uh, yeah, go check out that article on Fatwood. All right, the next one up is birch bark. Of all the wild forage tenders on the list, birch is the easiest to identify, process, and use. If it's dry, you really can't go wrong. Birch trees grow just about everywhere, but you should avoid harvesting bark from live trees. Just keep your eyes open as you walk through the woods and you're sure to spot a fallen tree or a sheet of distinct white and papery bark. There are two main ways to use birch bark as tinder, curls and dust. To use birch bark in curl form, simply tear some bark into pinky fingernail width or smaller strips. Now take each strip and wrap it tightly around your index finger using your thumb to hold it tight for a few seconds. This isn't anything terrible technical. All you, you're trying to do is make little curls instead of straight strips. Strips of bark curling up on themselves and tangling with other birch curls simple give the fire a better chance to spread. There is a plenty of air amidst the pile of torn bark and one lit, lit piece is more prone to spread to the others curled together. A generous showering of sparks from your ferro rod or a quick touch of a match will quickly light your birch bark tinder all right. This process is the most simple way to use birch bark, but it is also the least economical as it burns up all the bark in the process. To make your birch bark, birch bark tinder last for a dozen or more fires, make some dust. To make birch bark dust, take a piece of birch bark and lay it flat on a hard, safe surface. White side up or down, it doesn't matter much. Next, secure the bark with your thumb and fingers, leaving an open area of bark between. Carefully and with gentle pressure, scrape the blade of your knife back and forth on the surface of the bark. After a few seconds of scraping, you will see light brown dust begin to collect on the surface. This is where you need to be very careful. Yes, watch out for your fingers with the knife working so close, but with such gentle pressure, you should have no trouble controlling the blade. The care you need to take is in disturbing the dust. Birch dust is extremely light. Even the most gentle breath can blow it away. A jostle of the hand or slip of the knife could scatter your pile, but if you're careful, you will have a nice penny-sized pile in 30 seconds to a minute. Scrape the dust into a pile with your knife and get your ferro rod. Be careful that the bark doesn't curl up and scatter the dust. Birch bark likes to curl. Now, being careful not to scatter your pile, place the end of your ferro rod against the bark right at the edge of your dust pile. This is the bit that takes a bit of practice. Without driving your striker down into the dust pile and scattering it, scrape sparks down into the dust. It will smolder and light into a small flame. 
Let me uh, touch on that really quickly. So there's two ways that you can use this ferro rod. So one of the ways is you keep the ferro rod stable and then you use the striker to push the uh, push the, the sparks down into the you know to, into your uh, your tender right uh, and so that's one way that you normally see a lot of people doing that they're scraping the scraper against the ferro rod the other way to do it and one that you would want to use in this scenario right here with this dust is you wouldn't want to scrape the duster uh, I'm sorry the scraper towards the dust what you want to do instead of of keeping uh, the ferro rod stable and scraping with the scraper you want to keep the scraper uh, stable and then you're wanting to move the ferro rod up towards you and so that way um, you still get the effect of pushing the sparks down but you're not pushing towards the dust you're pulling away from the dust as, dust as you pull the ferro rod towards you and so uh, that's just a little little trick that uh, you see, especially when this kind of scenario is happening and, and you don't want to disturb the dust. All right, continuing on with this uh, uh, birch bark here. Catch the candle-sized flame on the end of a curled strip of birch bark or other tinder. Add it to your other tinder and kindling on standby and extinguish the rest of the burning dust. If you're quick, you can put out the burning dust before it burns through the piece of birch bark. With a little practice, you'll be able to go through this process several times with the same piece of bark. And once you're sure it's totally extinguished, just pack the bark away for the next fire. Fungi. There are two main types of fungi common to the U.S. that can be used as tinder. While both work best after fairly lengthy processing, it is possible to find usable as is specimens in the wild. The two types of fungi most commonly used as tender are chaga and tender fungus. Both are used and processed in the same way. However, tender fungus can be processed even more extensively to produce amadou, a fa fascinating and highly flammable material, but let's discuss them one at a time. There is a link to amadou here, and I don't know if I'm really saying that right or not, but that looks like the way it's spelled, uh, amadou. Uh, so chaga. Chaga is an ugly looking black parasitic fungus that grows on birch trees. It's easy to spot on the birch's normally white bark and you can feel good about ridding the tree of its parasite. The best way to know if a chaga fungus is mature enough to be useful to keep to give it a few knocks with the back of your knife. A mature chaga fungus is dark, hard, and woody, giving off a dull, almost hollow knock. Once you've found a good piece, use your knife to pry or stick, the no stick to knock the fungus off the tree. Normally, the fungus is not yet ready to use, but the ideal condition you're looking for are dry and dusty on the inside. You should be able to dig the crumbly inside of the chaga out with your knife and set it to smolder with a ferro rod. Tinder fungus is used and inspected for usefulness exactly the same way as chaga, only it looks a little different. The gray or dark brown fungus clings to the sides of trees and goes on living its parasitic life even after the tree has died and fallen. It is easily identifiable by its hoof-like appearance. Additionally, if you want to start a fun project, you could attempt to process tender fungus into a spongy orange material called amadou. Amadou has been used for thousands of years as a tinder and to make clothing. It is always good to be on the lookout for chaga and tinder fungus in the woods. However, chances aren't great that you'll find a specimen that is ready to use as is. While the process is lengthy, two or more weeks, it is easy. Just let it dry, take your fungi home, and just leave it out for a few weeks. Slowly but surely, it will dry out and be ready to use. When fully dried, both fungi are a wonderful form of tinder. You can dig out a fluffy pile as stated before or set your ferro rod directly on the inside of the fungus and set it smoldering. Either way, these fungi work perfectly dozens of times when used with a bird's nest. And what's even better, if you get a bit of the fungus smoldering, you can actually carry it around with you. A speck of smoldering coal within a fungus will stay hot all day. When you're ready to pack up camp and move on, just get a little bit of the fungus smoldering and forget it. Next time you make, a camp, next time you make camp and get ready to start a fire, just blow a little life back into your ember. Alright, so let's go ahead and look at kindling. 
If we attempted to list all the best kinds of kindling to be found in the wild, you'd be reading a novel instead of an article. So instead of exploring different kinds of kindling, let's discuss the details of what makes good kindling and how to process it in both fair and foul weather conditions. Beyond these details, your judgment will guide you to choose the right kind of materials. Type of wood. While some types of resin or oil-filled woods like pine, cedar, fir, and birch are some of the best for kindling, any kind of wood will do. The practicality of kindling has less to do with the species of tree and more to do with the condition and properties of the wood. Ideally, you are looking for dry, dead wood ranging in size from your pinky to your thumb. Smaller is okay, but any bigger and you'll have to do some processing. Kindling should not bend or crumble, but rather snap when broken. When cut or broken, you should see no green, as this means the wood is still alive and full of moisture. Look for downed trees with intact limbs or broken branches caught on trees or bushes. Any fallen dead wood that is up off the ground will not soak up the moisture from the weather saturated ground. Even in heavy precipitation, standing dead wood will remain dry on the inside. And guys, that's important. I know that you know when people have talked about uh, when I've seen videos of guys uh, up in the wilderness in wintertime. I mean, we're talking about blizzard conditions, snow, and uh, but they start a fire. And what they do is they find a, a dead tree that's still standing. They cut it down and they get to the middle of that wood uh, of that tree, you know. And so it's not like a humongous tree, um, but it's, uh, you know, they get to, they're able to cut it down and all that, but they get to the middle of it and that wood is dry and that's what they use to start the fire. And, um, and so that's, that would be in rainy conditions as well as uh, snowy conditions. So something to consider if you're ever in that situation. So processing uh, kindling. Processing dry kindling is the easiest thing in the world. If it's the ideal size, smaller than your pinky and up to the width of your thumb, you can easily snap kindling into forearm or shorter pieces with your bare hand. However, if you find yourself in a situation in which the only available wood is wrist thick or larger, you need to put in a little extra work. You can break down larger pieces of wood easily with a saw, axe, or hatchet. Just about anyone with basic survival skills can use these tools. But you don't always carry a folding saw or axe with you into the wilderness. You do most likely, however, carry a solid bushcrafting knife, and a knife is really all you need. Hey guys, uh... I have done, um, I, I know that I have it on the sidebar at, of Ed That Matters, and uh, you can go check that out. But uh, there is a, a really great, and I actually have two of these, because um, I just, I couldn't believe how, uh, how sturdy a knife they were. Um, but uh, I would recommend, if you're looking for a good survival knife, uh, and a, it's a budget knife, the Schrade S. CHF9 Extreme Survival. It's full tang drop point, fixed blade, uh, the TPE handle with it. It's $38.06 at uh, on Amazon. And uh, man, I just got to tell you, this sucker is it's it's a thick blade. It is a great deal. And so there's uh, over 1,100, almost 1,200 reviews, and it's, it has 4.5 stars. And I have used this when I did my uh, review for the solo stove uh, I use this to process the wood and man I was just very very impressed with it and uh, it's just a it's a solid knife so if you don't have uh, you know he's talking about bushcraft knife and, and knives and things like that if you don't have one of those uh, I would suggest you know looking at, at this trade uh, uh, full tang survival knife uh, it's it's a budget knife, but it's like for under 40 bucks, you cannot go wrong. Uh, it's a great deal. So I just wanted, I was thinking about that when he was saying uh, bushcraft knife and uh, realizing that some of you might not, you might be out there and you just don't have it. And uh, there's a lot of the times I see some of these guys on Facebook and, and YouTube and stuff, and they're talking about $200 knives, $250 knives. Uh, there's a friend that I know that uh, that lives here in Houston, and he uh, he was promoting one of his friends who makes knives here locally. And uh, I was like, oh, cool, man. You know, maybe I can go get a custom knife. And they're like 500 bucks. I'm like, uh, no, I think I'll stick to my trade. You know, 40 bucks. <laughs> it looks pretty good and uh, works just as well. And and those. You can imagine those $500 knives, uh, you take them out, it's like, man, I don't, I don't know if I really want to use a $500 knife, you know? Uh, maybe in an extreme survival situation, but 
do I really want to go play around with that? You know, maybe a $40 knife would, would do me better. I'm going to link to it in the show notes uh, of, of the proper website podcast.com. Or if you go over to Ed that matters, it's on the sidebar. Um, if you get the show notes in your, in your podcast catcher, it's not going to be there because it's an Amazon uh, link and it can't, it's got to reside on a website or, uh, you know, uh, in social media somewhere along those lines. So, uh, just uh, FYI, if you're interested in it, just come over to the proper website podcast.com, uh, episode 191, and, and it'll be linked there. Okay, so uh, as a baseline, ex- let me continue on, sorry. As a baseline example, let's say we're working with an eight foot long wrist thick branch. This piece of wood could be larger or smaller, it doesn't much matter, but it's helpful to have a clear picture in your head. For some reason, there's no smaller wood available, so you need to break this piece down into pencil thin pieces. Start by breaking the branch into shorter pieces. The easiest way to do this is to find a forked tree. Two trees very close together, slim wedge of rock or some such sturdy V-shaped situation. Stick the branch into the V where you want it to make the break. Now hold fast with your hands, press your chest against the branch and push the branch perpendicular to the, to the V. You're using your whole body to put strain on a single point of the limb, so with just a little effort, the limb will snap and your perfectly proportioned piece will fall harmlessly on the other side of the V. There's no need to risk injuring yourself by uh, smacking the branch against a hard surface or trying to break it under your foot or over your knee. Just use a little uh, clever leverage and save yourself the sweat. If the limb is too too big to break in this manner, fret not. There is another way. Find a thick, solid, forearm-length piece of wood for the purposes of batoning. Let's call it a baton. Place the blade of your bushcrafting knife where you want to make a cut and hit the back of your knife with the baton. Cut in at an angle, pull the knife out, then cut again at an intersecting angle. Think of it like using an axe, but instead of having all the heavy forces of an axe, you're providing the power with the strike of your baton. This is most definitely a sweat-inducing task, but it will get the job done. And so if you're batoning wood, you do want to have a, a little bit of a longer knife. Um, a lot of the times you'll, you'll see more knives uh, representing as bushcraft knives, and they are. They are very, they're excellent, excellent knives. They come so sharp. Uh, you got to be careful because they'll, they'll, they'll cut you. But uh, if you're talking about batoning, knife, uh, batoning wood, uh, depending on the size of the wood, sometimes more knives are just a little too short. Um, and so uh, you, that's where you would want something like the Shrade. But more knives are excellent if you can get a good deal. And usually around um, you know Christmas time and Black Friday and stuff like that, you can find. I know I found uh, one of the, the nicer more knives on sale during, uh, during the Christmas uh, you know, what is it? Cyber Monday, whatever. Uh, I got a really great deal and uh, really glad about that one. All right. So continuing on here, uh, now that you've broken down your large branch into shorter pieces, it's time to split it into kindling using the same batoning method as described above, stand the piece of wood up on end, preferably on a hard, safe surface and place the blade of your knife on the end of your wood. Let the blade hang over the edge of the wood as much as possible. The longer the knife, the better. With a secure grip on the knife, strike the back of the blade. It will bite into the wood. Once the spine of the blade has sunk into the wood, continue striking the piece of the the blade, striking out the other side of the wood. Continue striking and the knife will split the wood all the way down. Repeat this process, breaking down the wood into smaller and smaller pieces. So um, just to clarify, that second, this paragraph that I just read, most of the time when you hear guys and maybe you're watching a bushcraft video or something like that and they're they're batoning wood, a lot of the time they're doing it, that's what they're doing. Um, the paragraph above that was talking about uh, more like cutting cutting a, a piece of wood, cutting it down, not necessarily batoning it uh, into, uh, you know, down the middle of it, but cutting it to where you're able to make it into smaller pieces. And uh, that's kind of hard to picture, I guess, if you're if you're just reading it or listening to it, hopefully you get the the drift there. Um, it would be nice if there was a video along with this so to show that. Uh, but you can go check that out on YouTube when you get a chance. Uh, there's a lot of videos on that. Um, 
If I actually, if I find one, I'll try to link to it. Uh, just it's getting really late, so I don't know about that. <laughs> we'll see. All right, continuing on. Uh, once you have your growing pile of kindling, there is one final step that will make fire starting a breeze. Create a fire feather. To do this, run your knife at a steep angle down the length of a piece of wood. Using a cut face is best. With a little practice and control, this will produce thin curls of wood. It's okay if you accidentally cut the curls fully away from the piece of wood, but your true aim is to stop before that happens. An ideal fire feather has these thin curls still attached. When completed, your fire feather will have thin curls all around the wood. Creating this fire starting tool will make taking your fire from a small tender flame to a roaring fire easy. These methods are important to practice not only for a situation in which you can only find large pieces of wood. Being able to efficiently and confidently break down large pieces of wood with just a knife is the best way to produce fire in wet conditions. It doesn't matter if the rain's been falling for a week or if a wet and heavy snow covers everything in sight. Wrist thick and large, larger pieces of wood will remain dry in the center. Breaking down wood in this method will give you all the fuel you need for a fire. Then, once the fire is going, you can stack the smaller wet pieces of kindling and firewood around to dry. Fire at your fingertips. With a little know-how, a good bushcraft knife, and a ferro rod, you can make a fire in just about any situation. The skill of minimalistic fire starting is one that every person should have. So go out and try a few of these methods. They sound easy, and that's because they are. Knowing them could save your life. And of course, this exploration into wild forge, tinder, and kindling is by no means exhaustive. This knowledge is a culmination of one person's decade of research and practice, but there's always something out there, who, someone out there who knows a trick, or, trick you don't. So if you've come to the end of this piece and you have a nugget of fire-starting wisdom that hasn't been covered, please leave it on the comment. Survival isn't just about fending for yourself. Passing down this knowledge is what makes us survivors. I was a little disappointed that there's only two comments in this, uh, in this section or in this article because uh, I would have liked to have seen a lot more uh, comments here because this is one of those uh, you know, articles that provides a lot of content, a lot of information. And so uh, kind of disappointed in that. But uh, it's definitely one that is very, very valuable over at Modern Survival Online. There's a lot of links here that you can go check out. And uh, of course, you know he's got pictures of all the different types of, uh, you know, cattails and reeds and pitch and, and those kinds of things that you can uh, you can look at. Um, I, I think everybody should have a fire kit. So when you're talking about like bug out bags and things like that, um, you know, if you're just you have a get home bag and your idea is just to get home, definitely, you know, yeah, again, everybody should have lighters. Lighters, you know, at least two lighters. Bic lighters, they're cheap. They're, they're light. You need to have them. Just make sure that they're in a, situ in, in a case or some kind of way to where, uh, you know, they're not getting pressed down and uh, all the fuel is being spent. But uh, those are very, very important, right? Um, but uh, when I made our fire starting kits, I went to the dollar store to try to find uh, some kind of, uh, and actually what I think it was, like was, a, was an old uh, video game case. Uh, and you know it's a soft one of those old soft video game cases, and uh, I got a couple of them for a dollar, and I made those into my fire kits where I have different fire starting materials in there, uh, and so it makes it really easy if you you know you're digging into your pack and you're wanting to start a fire, you can bring that out. Um, but anyway, so that you know you'll always find things like that at a dollar store. You're not having to spend a whole lot of money on it. And, uh, you know, it's usually it has a zipper on it or some way to, you know, to close shut. And I just think that that was, uh, that find, it was a good find. And so, uh, you know, you definitely want to have a fire starting kit, uh, whatever, you, you know, you want to put some things in there like the Esbet, uh, tabs that he was talking about. Maybe you start, uh, maybe you put some tea lights in there. Maybe you put some, uh, lint from your lint trap from your washing machine. Maybe you make some uh, natural fire starters. Uh, you know, Todd over at Survival Sherpa, and we've read those before uh, here in the in the, um, on the podcast. Uh, how he has his uh, natural fire starter uh, that you can make. You can make those uh, waterproof matches. Uh, you know, it's the nice strike anywhere matches, and uh, just dip them in dip them in wax. And then when you need to light them, you just kind of tear the, the wax off of the top and then you just kind of go and then, then the wax will help it to uh, burn for a lot longer time. 
And so there's a lot of different little things that you can do and add uh, cotton balls with Vaseline uh, already mixed in, or you can you know have uh, little packets of Vaseline or whatever that you can buy, uh, like on Amazon, you can throw those in there as well. So a lot of different things that you can do and add to your kit and uh, maybe some ferro rods, some, uh, you know, some, uh, anyway, so ferro rods and definitely have your lighters and whatever other materials to start a fire in there uh, that you want to have. So again, that's over at modernsurvivalonline.com. Go check that one out. Uh, great articles over there. And so uh, that's it for episode 191. Appreciate you uh, hanging with me on this one and uh, getting all that fire starting material and water material, water uh, storage solution information there as well. Uh, and uh, that's it, man. We're, we're going to go ahead and end it off here today. Uh, you know what? Let me, one more thing. I, I do want to invite you. Uh, I did put a, an email, sent an email to the email list. If you're not part of the email list, I, I welcome you to come join that. Uh, actually, all of my websites tie into the to one email list. But um, I'm going to do a Facebook Live uh, next Tuesday uh, at 7 o'clock p.m. Central Time. I'm going to do uh, uh, on the Facebook page, on the Prepper website Facebook page. And the reason I'm doing it on the Facebook page instead of the Facebook group is because there's, there's going to be people who, who might want to come watch it, uh, who are interested in it but they don't necessarily want to be a part of the group. And I don't want people to come to the group and sign up for the group just to watch the Facebook Live uh, if they don't want to be a part of the group. Uh, today, you know, somebody posted today uh, an advertisement. So they got they got by me somehow and they posted an advertisement, uh, you know, and I just, I, I kicked them because we're not doing that, you know. We're not doing, we're, 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 this is going to be a community where, uh, you know, we're going to learn and grow from each other, but I'm not going to allow a bunch of people to come in there and just, you know, advertise products and try to, you know, sell, sell, sell and all that kind of stuff. And so I don't, I don't want it to, I want the people in the Facebook group to be there because they want to be there. And so that's why I'm doing it on the Facebook page. I will be sending out links. I'll, I'll provide all those kinds of things, but it'll be very easy. Uh, so if you haven't liked the Facebook uh, page, the Prepper website Facebook page, you might want to do that. Uh, but uh, that'll be next Tuesday, 7 o'clock p.m. Uh, Central Time. I'm, I'm going to share my favorite EDC uh, kit with you uh, on on that Facebook Live. And so I'm kind of looking forward to that one. I'll be on uh, Thanksgiving break. Uh, that's the week of Thanksgiving. Hopefully there's not too many people traveling. Uh, and hopefully you can be a part of that. But if not even, uh, if you don't get, a, get to be part of the Facebook Live, um, it will be recorded. And you can go check that out a little bit later on. All right, so enough talking, enough for this podcast, uh, episode 191. With that, choose to live a more self-reliant life. Choose not to be so dependent on the government grid or the grind. Until tomorrow, stay prepped and aware. Peace.